Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. The rapper Ice-T's new documentary shows him talking to a bunch of famous MCs about their craft. You know, every rapper walks into a, a show and says, I'm not rapping tonight. I'm going to chill. But it's biting me, fighting me, enticing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. This rhyme will be kicking in until I hit my last note. It's like crazy. It's like it's art. I mean, we take a lot of time with these rhymes. I want you to hear every word. And the great MCs understand that's important. It's Bullseye. This week, Ice-T interviews Snoop, Rakim, and a bunch of other famous rappers in his new documentary. So I just called all my friends about my address book. I said, look, I got an idea. I'm not going to ask you about money, cars, girls, beef, jewelry, none of that. I just want to ask you about the craft. Everybody's like, wow, nobody ever asks us those questions. I talked to Greta Gerwig, star of the new movie Lola Versus. If I can make people feel like you can look like a normal person and still be on screen, I think that's a good thing. And Aaron Freeman, formerly of the rock band Ween, on the song that changed his life. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by a few of our favorite culture critics to recommend something that is worth your time. This week, no different. We're joined by Daniel Ralston and Maggie Sirota from the Low Times podcast. Hey, Daniel and Maggie, how are you guys doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Great, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, so let's get right to the music here. Uh, Daniel, your suggestion, Caitlin Rose's Pile Driver Waltz. This is a new country record. Let's take a listen to a little bit of it. You look like you've been to breakfast at the Heartbreak Hotel. Sat in the back booth by the pamphlets and the literature on how to lose. Your waitress was miserable, and so was your food. If you're going to try to walk on water, make sure you wear your comfortable shoes. Mystery. Caitlin Rose is an interesting singer. She comes from an interesting lineage. Tell me a little bit about her. Yeah, her mom is Liz Rose, who's sort of an old-school Nashville songwriter. She has uh, co-writing credits on a ton of uh, Taylor Swift tracks and a bunch of other people. Caitlin comes from more the alt-country end of things, and this song, Pile Driver Walt, is a cover of a song by the Arctic Monkeys. There's always been a, a very strong lyrical bent to their songs. Like This song has the line, I, I know you've been for breakfast at the heartbreak hotel yeah everything in this song kind of lends itself to being a country song so it's really kind of a perfect fit maggie let's talk a little bit about the band lemonade and their song soft kiss but first let's take a listen to it
it seems like there's some contrast in, in this song in terms of what's going on sort of lyrically and melodically in the, in the danciness. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's kind of also a throwback to some of my favorite 80s groups. Like if you listen to a Smith song, um, you have this very jangly, upbeat guitar from Johnny Marr, but then the lyrics are going to take you in a whole different direction. And the lyrics could be very dark or very angry. Um, with this song, you hear the singer just very mournfully. I mean, he sounds very heartbroken, and he's kind of mournfully asking, I'm assuming the woman who broke his heart, if she still wears his coat in the winter. And that's something, yeah, maybe it would take a couple times to pick up on because the sound is so bouncy and so light. Daniel Ralston suggests Caitlin Rose's Pile Driver Waltz. Maggie Sirota suggests Lemonade's Soft Kiss. Uh, together, they are two of the co hosts of the Low Times podcast. Daniel, Maggie, thanks for joining us on Bullseye. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Ice-T is an entertainment business veteran. He's been acting for 20 years, and he was a pioneer of West Coast hip-hop in the early 80s. His roots are so deep that his first screen credit in 1984's Breakin' was as Rap Talker. (laughs) That's not a joke. His breakthrough on screen was in 1991's New Jack City, and he spent the last dozen years or so solving crimes on Law & Order SVU. As an MC and as the frontman of the metal band Body Count, he's released more than a dozen albums in his 25-year music career. His new documentary, which he directed and hosts, is called Something From Nothing, The Art of Rap. He traveled from coast to coast talking to rappers from Grandmaster Kaz to Kanye West about the work of the MC. Ice, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, man, thanks for the support. Thanks for having me, man. I want to play a little bit of your first record. Um, This is 1983's The Coldest Rap. Let's take a listen. Y'all, y'all, y'all. Please, please check it out. I'm a player. I'm always clean. I rode Mercedes Benz when I was 17. From the womb to the tomb, I run my game. I'm cold as ice, and I show no shame. Since post, I got more money than the U.S. men. I ride ragtop roll with rocks on my hand. My body in the city there. I have an ocean line, private jet. Bel Air bookies place my bets. I own islands off the coast of France. And I wear designer shirts and pants. When I was brought into this world, my mama never asked. I was a boy or a girl. Plus, I rolled over to her and gave her a kiss. She said, yo, daddy don't rock me like this. When the doctor put me on the behind, I broke on down with a funky rhyme. The nurses said I was awfully cute when I played at the joint in a three-piece suit. Y'all, 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 please, please, please check it out. This song, I mean, this is like uh, this is like an electro record. It's yeah. actually Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on the production. Yeah, what happened with that was, you know, I'm I'm at a beauty parlor. At that time, I had my hair. My hair was permed and curled, like some real pimp stuff. And uh, I used to say the rhymes to the girls, just, you know, trying to mack them down. You know, it was my, my, my way of entertaining them. And this guy said, hey, man, you want to make a record? I'm like... Were. Yeah, I got a record. I got a studio. This particular guy's name was Willie Strong, and he had another guy named Cletus Anderson, and they own uh, a record store in L.A. called VIP. They own this track with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on it. Somebody was singing on it, and they took me in the studio. They wiped the singing track, 
They put me in a booth just like we're sitting in now talking, and he goes, go. And I just said every rhyme I knew him off the top of my head. I think I did that record in one take. And I'm like, you know, I said the hook and everything. And it just kept going and going until I ran out of rhymes. And like, that's a take. And they put it out. It's called The Coldest Rap. And uh, I was just saying, all, I'm the pimp, the player, the woman layer, the hooli doula, the whole house ruler. I was I got so many clothes in my wardrobe each day. When I put some in, I got to throw some away, you know. So it's just me talking that player stuff and just having fun with the rap. 1983. You know, there's a great part in the movie uh, that you've directed, The Art of Rap, where you're talking about this kind of um, pre-hip-hop rapping and rhyming, this kind of just street rapping. Toasting, you know, yeah. they call it, yeah. Tell me a little bit, That was that where was that where you first, or, or was your plan always to be, you know, in 1979, Rapper's Delight broke nationally. I mean, it was a huge record. I had no idea it was ever going to be rap music. Just those rhymes was something that you would do on the street. There was an um, uh, album, if you research it, it's called The Hustlers Convention. And it was like, a, you know, old cats saying rhymes. And you had The Last Poets. Then you had Gil Scott Heron. And, uh, you know, Iceberg Slims even did an album called Reflection, where he spoke in rhyme. Speaking in rhyme has been tradition in black, you know, culture for years. Now, doing it syncopated to a beat, that's different. That's where rap and hip-hop came. So I had all these little rhymes. I used to make rhymes for the gangs just to entertain my friends. And um, when I first heard hip-hop, I'm like, I could do that. You know, it was similar to something I'd already been doing, but it took a while to learn how to get it to lock into the beat. And like Rakim says, correct use of syllables. You know, you somebody could try to rhyme and you could listen to them and you can go, it's just not locked in. And it's like, all they got to do is drop one syllable and it'll just lock in. And that's when you get into the craft. We actually have a clip from the movie of Rakim talking a little bit about his writing process. Um, let's take a listen to that. I try to start off with 16 dots on the paper. What? Start off with 16 dots on the paper. Bang, 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 bang. If it's a 16 ball rhyme, at least I know, you know, what I'm dealing with. My thing was, if four balls was this long, my thing was, I got... You know, I, I see like a graph in between them four bars. And within that, I could place so many words and so many syllables and so many words. And, and at times, you know, if the beat was perfect, I can take it to the point where there's there's no other words you could put in that four bars. There's these two revolutions going on um, shortly after your first LP came out. Um, you know, right in this time, 86, 87, 88, 89, um, one is on the West Coast, you have NWA taking what you did on, on Six in the Morning and making it into a phenomenon. A super movement. Yeah. The other one is this sort of aesthetic revolution 
which Rakim is, I think, probably the greatest. I mean, you there are some other truly exceptional examples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you talked to Big Daddy Kane in the movie, um, and there were folks who were doing complex things before Rakim. But there's this aesthetic change going on at that time, which is, you know, this this complexity is entering hip-hop. I call it verbal gymnastics. It's like, not, let's not just rhyme simple to the 4-4. Four, four. We're going to intricate it. We're going to make it in 16s. Uh, L.A. at the, that time was trying to define themselves. And uh, we had to let the world know what we looked like. So while we were busy defining ourselves, which was pretty much a gang culture, uh, New York had taken it off into what, what in hip-hop they call skills. They're like, okay, anyone can rhyme 4-4, four, four, but... Do you have skills? Can you take it to the next level? So what I had to do is say, I'm not going to be able to have maybe that verbal complexity. I have to rhyme heavy. I have to make, you know, uh, like I said in A Mind Over Matter, it ain't really how much you say is what you say. I got no time on the mic to play. I have to take what I say and just make it heavy. So every single bar means something. And in Chuck D, I live off of his rhyme. I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling. So there's no riddles in my rhymes. Every single word means something. There's something really great that Chuck D says um, in the movie that I was, frankly, something that had never occurred to me. And Chuck D's style, for those who, for some reason, have never heard Public Enemy, is a sort of booming and proclamatory. Yeah, yeah. It's, he has one of the most powerful Here voices. it is. You know, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Chuck talks about the fact that he developed that he developed this style and many of the MCs that went before him developed these sort of proclamatory big booming styles essentially because they were rapping on such lousy sound systems that in order to cut through the crappy sound you just had to boom like it had to be as clear as a bell and as powerful as a you know a gunshot, or else it wasn't going to get heard. You don't know how many MCs I've trained to rap live. Like I've taken people out on tour, and I've like, look, I got to teach you how to rap live. The trick is, first off, you have to listen to the monitors. Secondly, you have to listen to your voice and how it's coming through that monitor, and and actually EQ your own voice to break. That system. So if I got a very low voice like that and it sounds muggy, I might have to take my voice up to where it's going to cut. You know, I work with Slayer and uh, Tommy from Slayer said one time, he said, well, if I can't hear what you're saying, how can I hear what you're saying? You know, so you have to. I mean, we take a lot of time with these rhymes. I want you to hear every word. And the great MCs understand that's important. These are like if you even look at the paper, like it's like entry, it's thousands and thousands of words. I told somebody one day, I said, you know, I take a Bruce Springsteen album, I could take all the words in that whole album, and that's one song for me. The amount of numbers of words I have to use to get one song done. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper and actor Ice T. He talks to a whole pile of hip hop luminaries about their craft in his new movie. It's called Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. I want to play a clip of a great freestyler who also um, has spent his career refining and refining and refining his use of language, and that's Eminem. Um, this is him talking to you in Detroit about his writing process. What I love about rap is that 
it feels like it's puzzles to mm. me. Like words are like puzzles and trying to figure out a puzzle and trying to figure out what word could go here. Like how can I take uh, words and, and put them at the end of the sentence, but in between maybe make some words rhyme in between that, that rhyme and like sandwich them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so sandwich those words and try to make them, make them rhyme inside of the phrase and then come back outside and try to, you know, try to rhyme with the word that I ended on the snare. You know, like I just like, I'm just I'm kind of real into the, the technical part of, of it. That sounded complicated with what he was saying. Like a rapper can follow that. And to everybody else, that probably sound like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it must have been it, it must have been fun to go and talk to all of these people that you've known for probably most of these people are probably personal friends and acquaintances. No, everyone was. Everyone was. The only way I could do the movie was just call my friends. I, I had no ability to call. I didn't really want to call people I didn't know because I wanted the film to feel like a conversation. So I just called all my friends about my address book. I said, look, I got an idea. I want to do a movie. I'm not going to ask you about money, cars, girls, beef, jewelry, none of that. I just want to ask you about the craft. Everybody's like, wow, nobody ever asked us those questions. So they were like, word, I just come through with the camera, get me. So now you got to hunt them down and chase them because all these guys are moving targets and stuff. So you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get Dr. Dre and he's like, show up at my crib at three. And you show and his man's like, yo, Dre had to pick his son up. He'll be back at six. He'll get back <laughs> at six. And then somebody's like, yo, Dre says tomorrow at nine. Is that cool, Ice? And they're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I got a camera crew. Somebody goes, be real's on the phone. OK, tell be real we're on our way. You know, so we just running and gunning. And there's no rehearsal or anything. No one was prepped for the questions. I was just having fun talking to my friends about something we all love. Because I imagine that when when you go and, you know, have lunch with Dub C or something like that, you guys are talking about each other's kids or you're talking about, you know. We're talking about old what times. What movie you saw, like whatever. Yeah. Like just normal people's friend stuff. Yeah, we talk about. Xbox, and we talk about this, we talk about that. But mostly we reminisce. I think, you know, if you were a football player and you see some of your old teammates, you you talk about game six in the playoffs. You know, I got we, we all have so many inside stories. I remember I was with Dub C in Canada, and Coolio broke into a pawn shop, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and stole, like, a guitar or something, you know. And so I'm, like, responsible for them. They was, like, the mad circle. And I'm, like, responsible for them. And Coolio had a guitar. And I'm, like, yo, where did you get that guitar? And he's, like, somebody snitched and said, yo, Coolio then broke the window at the... I'm, like, yo, we got a show <laughs> Tomorrow, like, you can't be robbing. They're going to, what if you get arrested tomorrow? You in Canada, dude. So it was like, there's so many of those stories. And I think one of the things about interviewing, like, I guess more classic MCs and people from, that were in my area at time when I was, you know, out there on the road, you got humility. You know, when you deal with a new MC, everything's on point. There's no mistakes. There's no problems. I can't, you know, no, we don't have no mistakes. But when you get to a, somebody like Run, he can look back and it's just funny. You know, you can, you, you, you've already succeeded in what you want to do. You can kind of laugh at your life. After a break, I finally crack the case of whether Ice-T actually wrote a rap album for Mr. T in the early 1980s. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. 
Hey gang, it's me, Jesse. We just finished Max FunCon on the West Coast. It was an amazing good time. It changed innumerable lives. You could probably put a number on it because there's only a couple hundred people there. Anyway, right around the corner is Max FunCon East, which we are putting on with some help from our friends at WNYC in New York. It is going to be a blast. We are already three quarters sold out, so don't wait for that lineup announcement to buy your tickets because... There might not be any tickets left. If you want more information, you want to get some tickets now, go to MaxFunCon.com. MaxFunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. This episode of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, supported by donations from people like you and by Comedy Bang Bang on IFC, Friday nights at 10, hosted by our pal Scott Ackerman. It's comedy so nice, they banged it twice. It is a vaguely talk show like television program also by bing making search social you can use bing to include results from both the web at large and also uh, websites like facebook and twitter pulling content from your own friends and from the experts social search more online at bing.com bing is for doing it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is the rapper and actor ice t His new documentary is called Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. It hits theaters this week. I want to take a listen to uh, Dougie Fresh uh, talking a little bit about um, the rappers who went before him and inspired him. Can you, off the head, break out uh, one of your favorite rhymes from any rapper, from any generation, from any time that you walk with that's just stuck in your head? I mean, for me, man, the three best MCs of all time is Melly Mel, Kumo D, and Grandmaster Cat. Right. Hands down. You got any as rhymes as off foundation. the head? Off the, the... I know all they rhymes, so don't say ask one, me that. Say one, <laughs> just say one, say one. Kumo D said, I rhyme 100 miles an hour with lightning speed and power. Sweetest of the sweet make an MC sour. Timber as a tower because I'll devour any MC and I can prove it now or a little bit later. I mean, come on, I can keep going with <laughs> That's this. right. But see, the funny thing is each one of their styles are very different. Like, yeah. Modi was technically extreme. I mean, like, like sharp. And then slickness and flavor was cast. Melly Mel was spiritual. You ask all the guys in this movie, and we don't see it from everyone, a question like that. Yeah. And I wonder what made you decide to ask that question, because hip-hop is, uh, for, is for all of its virtues, not typically uh, a genre that's about talking about what you like about somebody else. <laughs> yeah, well, the trick with hip-hop, like when I talk to Snoop, hip-hop is a sport. Uh, the only music that's really, really close to a sport. You know, it starts off, my DJ's better than yours. I can out-rap you. I can out-dance you. My graffiti piece is better than you. It's very competitive. But we are all fans. You start off a fan. Before you start playing basketball, guess where you were? In the bleachers, watching Michael Jordan slam that ball, and you wanted to do it. You start off listening to rap. So we all are fans. Who, who, who defines a great MC for you? I mean, you know, to me, between Chuck D, I mean, there's great ones, Chuck D, KRS-One, Ice Cube. See, people don't understand why we call ourselves MC, and we, when, I, when I finished the movie, I was like, wow, we left that out. An MC is a master of ceremonies. Uh, the DJs in the Bronx found out that they 
back in the day when hip hop was first starting that everybody dug the breakdown of the record. Like why the breakdown when every when you have a record and it goes get down the part where the rec, where the people stop singing. That's the part where everybody would try to dance the best and stuff. So the DJ said, why even play the rest of the record? Let's just play the breaks. And they were playing Steve Miller Band. They were playing Aerosmith. They were playing Billy Squire, Big Beat. They were playing all these records. I was spinning Black Sabbath, you know. And, you know, the trick was not to let the other DJs know what beats you're playing because you couldn't go out and buy beats. You had to get them. So they would hide their records. And they the guy that had the best beat breaks was the best DJ. Biz Markey was famous for bathing with his records to take the labels off. Exactly. So there was a secrecy about it. So now I'm the great DJ. You hand the mic over, I hand it over to you, and I say, tell everybody how great I am. You know, so that's why early rap records were all about the DJ. It was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Jazzy Jeff and the French Prince. The DJ provided the music. It was his sound system. You're lucky to be rapping. But what the rapper did, he would go, yeah, the DJ's great, but I'm kind of cool and I'm kind of fly. And slowly stole the show from the DJ. Like, And then another guy would get up and say, well, he was good, but I'm better. And matter of fact, I was with his sister last night. And the crowd would laugh. And that's how it would happen. But an MC not only can rap, but he can control the crowd. That's what a great MC is. So when you see kids on stage and they can rap, but then when you say tell the audience what to do, they kind of freeze up. They're not MCs yet. An MC is like a KRS-One or a Chuck D or an Ice Cube or a Melly Mel. You know, they just dominate the stage when they're on and you just are in the palm of their hand. So, you know, and like my favorite, you know, I, I guess a lot of people's favorite is Rakim. And Rakim was just so lyrically deep that it just made everybody kind of like, it wasn't just wordplay, it was like content, it was heavy, and his flow was impeccable. You you say in the movie, um, when you're talking with him, that what was so amazing to you is that when you heard Rakim, it was like being transported to a different place, which is very different than what had been going on in hip-hop to that point, which was essentially either... Um, either just talking about fun stuff, who's the best, whatever, mm-hmm. or talking about this is the reality of here, this is where I'm from, this is describing my situation. That- well, he, he also had the ability to hit MCing dead on the head. Like, and, and Eric B. for presidents, I came in the door, I said it before, I never let the mic magnetize me no more. That means, you know, every rapper walks into a, a show and says, I'm not rapping tonight. I'm a chill, but it's biting me, fighting me, enticing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. This rhyme will be kicking in until I hit my last note. It's like, and then and then like a microphone fiend where he says, I was a fiend before I became a teen. I melted microphones instead of cones of ice cream music orientated. So when hip hop was originated, I did it like pieces of puzzles, complicated. I grab the mic and try to say yes, y'all. They try to take it and say that I'm too small. Cool. I don't get upset. I kick a hole in the speaker, pull the plug, then I jet. I mean, it's like crazy. It's like it's art. I could take another rapper and he could rap 10 times as long as what I just did and never say anything as fly as that. So that's why it's like it's not really how much you say. It's what you say. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
My guest is the rapper and actor Ice-T. He talks to a whole pile of hip-hop luminaries about their craft in his new movie. It's called Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. What's remarkable to me about Rakim specifically is that as as eloquent and profound as his lyrics are, um, the thing, the other thing that is so transfer that makes him such a transformational figure, I think, in hip hop, is the fact that he could, he, you could drop all of the language mm-hmm. from Rakim's flow. You could make it. And this is the thing that that makes me feel like it's it's unfair to say hip hop is poetry because it's something other than poetry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you could drop all of the language from a, from a Rakim verse, and the sound of that voice, just as an instrument on the song, um, is so spectacular. I mean, he took he took the cadence of hip hop from ba 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 to this moving, flowing, shifting, changing cadence that is, you know, it's like a John Coltrane solo. It's something. incredible. The thing of it is, is, like, I try to explain to kids when I do lectures, I'm like, you know, let's start off with a drum beat. All right, so we have a drum beat. Boom, pop, boom, 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 pop. If you're a singer, you're like a horn or you're like a string or you're like a violin. So over the beat, boom. Bop, boom, 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 bop. You're going, da, 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 da. You're like flowing over it. That's what singers do. Rappers are percussion instruments. So our job is now inside the beat to lay an additional percussion. So the beat's going, boom, bop, boom, 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 bop. We go, that's the flow. Now, that's a trick. So we're laying a percussion inside of a percussion. I want to play a clip of uh, Nas talking about hip-hop. I think Nas has this really passionate answer to this question that, that you asked everyone. And l- l- let's hear it. Why do you think rap isn't respected? Threatening. Mm. We're not supposed to be thinking like this. We're not supposed to be talking like this. What are we doing proud of how we talking with this broken English? How the f*** are we making poetry out of this broken English? Why are you guys bringing street conversation to the mainstream world? Stay in your place. Stay out of there. I don't like looking at you. Mm. Fix your pants. Fix your hat. Y'all supposed to stay in the gutter. Get out of here. What are you doing invading my home? Why are my kids liking your music? What's going on? I don't like you. I don't like you. That's all they're saying. Mm -hmm. And we know it. So that's that's why I'm I'm proud to wear my shit a little sad. I mean I'm a grown man now. I don't have no business wearing saggy jeans, <laughs> no business at all. You know what I'm saying? But I might let it sag a little bit, just annoy a few stiff, <laughs> just because I'm. That's what got me here, mm-hmm. and I'm always gonna stay true to that. And you know, Nas's father was a jazz musician. Well, you know, incredible. I mean, a lot of these guys got musical backgrounds. Rakim can play like every instrument. Flavor can play like every instrument. So you know, a lot of these cats go about this as, you know, music. You know, it's it's not just. You know, I just think like my friend told me, you make it look easy, and the press kind of leans toward the rock and roll side of it. The rock and roll side of it is, hey, how you partying? Uh, who who tore up the hotel? What girl you sleeping with? What kind of Ferrari did you buy? But you're forgetting that Aerosmith plays instruments, like Keith Richards and those are really guitar players. It starts with the art. 
And then the the rock and roll lifestyle really is available to anybody that's got money, honestly. You know, so once you get money, if you interview 100 people with money, they'll all sound like rock stars. It's funny. <laughs> when, when Nas is, when you ask that, when you ask Nas that question, uh-huh. he doesn't even have to take a second to think about mm-hmm. it. That is so, that is so close to, you can feel that pain, that upset that he has right there. And he's saying, and he just opens, he basically just opens up and lets it out. And it's but this you, thing that, that has driven him it's driven all to of us. be the guy that he is. It's driven all of us. You know, it's, it's what I call powered by hate. You know, people that are successful, you always usually working upstream, you know, and, and that's what makes you excel. You know, you know, there's a there's there's if once people start liking you, then it becomes difficult, you know, because now everybody's on your side. But when there's some kind of opposition to what you're doing, that's what rock lives off of. You know, it needs somebody to say it's not I don't like it, you know, and then you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to push this down your throat. Like if if I want to stay in shape, all I got to do is go to the Internet and hear somebody say, oh, ice tea's old and I can go get another 20, 50 sets in the gym, you know, (laughs) use the use that negative energy to fuel you. And you'll find I used to tell parents, I said, if you really want your kids to stop listening to hip hop, act like you like it, too, (laughs) you know. I say, hey, let's sit down and listen to this Ice-T album together. They'll hate it. So, you know, that's part of it. That's part of adolescence, being a little bit different. And I think that's one of the paradoxes rap is going into right now is because the parents, we are hip-hoppers. And the kids, they don't want to be on the same channel. But our generation never grew up. Hip-hop is the fountain of youth. It, you just don't grow up. If you were there, we're, we're on the same. I'm on the same. My son's 20. I'm on the same channel he's on. You know, so we wear the same clothes. We feel the same thing. And uh, it's, a, it's a weird, weird generation we're in right now. But it is. I mean, I think it is different for you and the other folks who are in this film. And, you know, uh, there are there really isn't anyone featured in this film who uh who you know emerged in the 21st century this is you know Kanye West is you know whose first record came out in like 2001 yeah you're, you're probably. true true and so most of these folks that you're talking to are folks who have perspective on their careers who have perspective in many cases on the the rise of hip hop you know, they remember, as I'm sure you do, before hip-hop existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very different thing than to talk to somebody who, um, you know, if you if you went out and talked to somebody, if you went out and talked to ASAP Rocky, you know, who's just about to put out his first real record. Well, he's jumping on a boat that's already rolling. You know, he's jumping on a ship that's moving versus trying to move it from nothing. So they're coming in at this place when, you know, radio controls rap. You know, right now you're underground. You're not going to get sell any records. You have to go pop. You have to be on the radio. It's a lot of different uh, dynamics with these kids today. There's thousands and thousands of rappers. When I started rapping, you could actually buy everybody's record. You had the Run DMC album. You had the EPMD. You had that Beastie Boy album. You got the Rock Kim album. You know, you you pretty much now you got everyone who dropped every month. It would be like four or five, but you could own every rap album. Now, come on, man, they they're putting out like a hundred mixtapes a day for free. So 
So it's flooded right now. It's very difficult. How do you think your perspective is different now on that era of the you know birth of hip hop um, now that it's been 25, 30 years? I didn't really know what we were creating. I didn't really know what what how big it would be. No one could foresee clothing lines and you know movies and television and you know Doritos commercials with rap, you know, but we knew it was something and we knew every time somebody said it was a fad, we were like it's not. So we knew it was going to be here 25 years later, but we had to fight. I mean, they used to take Luke to jail. You know, they were after me. You know, we were outlaws. I used to go to events and they would read stuff to me, say, well, if you curse, I remember Columbus, Georgia. So if you curse, we're going to take you to jail. I must have cursed up a storm and the cops were standing on the side of the thing. And I, my boys were running the lights. They shut the lights off in the arena and I went into the crowd and got out. And then the cops were chasing the bus and we got outside of the city limits. You know, it's outlaws. Like we were just having a good time. But we're like, we're not really we're breaking your dumb law. But, you know, <laughs> kids, nobody's getting hurt. We're not hurting nobody. This is free speech. I remember forget I talked to Alice Cooper one time about the Bible Belt. Now it's the Dirty South. When I was doing it, it was the Bible Belt. He said, well, Ice-T, there's just some places you don't rock and roll. Because <laughs> they were definitely after him and his crazy ass. He was out there doing Wild Cold Alice and stuff like that. But I'm just proud to have been a part of it, a movement that's still around today, you know, kids have transformed it in a lot of ways. And I think as being an OG or a person that had something to do with it, I just want to keep a level of difficulty in it. That's what makes it an art form. Uh, don't drop the bar so low that anybody can do it. Then it's no skill set to it. One of the reasons you call someone a star, when I look at Michael Jordan, I call him a star because he's doing something I can't do. That's what a star does. When you just make it like everybody can do it, yeah, everybody can rap. Everybody, you know, my mailman comes over. This fool sounds like DMX. He like, hold up, son, yo, I got, I got, I got lyrics, son, you know. But to be that star that we all gonna admire, there's got to be more to it than just a hit single. You gotta give me more. Let's just, I want to believe in you, you know. And that's all I want. I just want cats to con- to continue to keep it, keep it funky. You know, um, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ice T, is uh, the director and the host of a new film called Something from Nothing: The Art of Rap. What what answer to a question? Now that you you talk to literally dozens and dozens yeah. of MCs, what answer surprised you the most? Mm. I think the answer really was the origin of them. That those were always interesting, like KRS-One saying he started in a battle. I didn't know KRS-One got his name. He was it doesn't say it showed in a movie, but he said he was studying Hare Krishna, and he was named after uh, Krishna. You know, I was like, wow, I didn't. I thought your name was Chris. He's like, no, nah. you know. I mean, so it's lots of these origin stories or MC Light or Salt and people telling how they stood in their kitchen and rapped and be real, saying, hey, they told me I wasn't going to be in the group. You know, you're like, be real, Cypress Hill? They, nah, nah, they said, you better get a better voice. So he had to come up <laughs> with that voice or he was out of the group. Just those moments when the rappers just said, man, like even Kanye saying, I lost my first battle. I was just impressed with the 
the humbleness of the artists and them being honest with me and telling real true heartfelt stories that I don't think anyone would have ever heard ever you know I would have heard it but I wanted I gave I'm I've I've been given a chance to let y'all see the rappers I know cuz people you know they they see Snoop but they don't know Snoop I know him so that's why sometimes when I see and I hear negative stuff about my people my boys and stuff I'm like come on man that ain't really dude you know that that's that's drama. And, like, you could sit here and have a nice interview with me. But, you know, later on the night when we're doing the after party and I go into ice tea mode, I'm going to crank up. And, I'm a, you know, I'll go into that nightmare walking psychopath talk and I'll put the lokes on and I'll bail on stage. I'll be 18 years old again. And that's, that, that's, that's performance. And I'm giving it to you and I'm there, you know. So... We are a lot. We are multidimensional. We are multi. People meet me all the time. They go, "Ice, you're a nice guy." I thought you'd be like a serial killer. I go. <laughs> I always tell them, "I go, well, you're not my enemy, are you?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so I need to. I need to ask you about this because I read it several different places. But okay. um, I figured, as long as you're sitting here Get in the my horse's studio, mouth, man, you got me. Yeah, exactly. So when I was a kid, I was born in 1981. Mm-hmm. So. When I was a kid, I had no greater hero than Mr. T. Okay. Mr. T was like the the hero of my life until yeah. I was old enough to know that I should probably get a real real hero who has actually done stuff. Right. No offense to Mr. T. Mr. T. Mr. T. He's got great. put on by being the best bouncer. He was in a yeah. bouncer's contest. So I want to know, I have heard from a number of sources that you actually wrote rhymes for Mr. T's weird sort of after school special video. Be somebody or be somebody's fool. It was an album by Mr. T. How did you... We actually used to have the album at my old college radio station. I've listened to it a number of times. Mr. T is not a talented rapper. Like I said, I'm still a Mr. T fan. I'm not putting the man down, but he's not good at rapping. (laughs) But how do you even get that job? A, is that true? And B, how how do you you do it? It, Very carefully, okay? (laughs) Mr. T is not the kind of person that's really going to take too much instruction. I mean, you ask (laughs) ask Mr. T. Especially in 1985, right? Ask Mr. T, uh, what do you do on Thanksgiving? I don't eat. You know, I, cl- I feed the hungry. I clothe the naked. You know, like, Lord have mercy. So I was just a hot rapper in L.A. at the time. They had a project for him. They said, we want to do this um, album called Be Somebody, Be Somebody's Fool. We want him to have positive raps. Uh, can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was a work for hire. It was a job. It paid a little bit of money. I'm like, you know, blah. You say, in them days, you say, hey, I'll give you 25000 I'm like, guess what? I'll write that shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I said, give me the topics. And they wrote one about mama, and they wrote one about this. And write. They, they just gave me the outlines. So I wrote these rhymes. So then they made the music, and I had to rap, rap it over the raps. Then I had to give the tracks. This is how you do it. Then you give that to him and listen to it. And he rolled with it for like a month. And his job was to learn the raps. So somewhere floating around, there's a be somebody or be somebody fool's master with me rhyming. All those damn rhymes. (laughs) Somewhere. Whoever gets their hands on that 
You're in trouble, man. I don't care. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm on television. I'm caked out. I'm all right. I got a view of the ocean. So I'm all right. At this point, I can't say I've ever heard the album. I think I heard one or two of the songs. But, hey, it's Mr. T, man. You know, Mr. T had cereal, okay? So stop playing. Mr. T was the man back in the day. Um, there's this, uh, there's this one song on the record that I, I listen oh, to Oh, no, recently. you're about to play it? Yeah, of course I am, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play it here no in the mother. studio. And this song, um, what's it called? it's called Treat Your Mother Right. Oh, Lord, I know that. Mother, I always love her. Who made the music? <laughs> Treat her right. Treat her right. Give me moan and a miserable groan from the pain that she felt when I was born. Always for the oven with the burning heat. Where she stood making sure I had something to eat. Y'all probably got to guess I spelt out mother for him, you know? <laughs> My temperature when I wasn't feeling right. Anxious for the hard-earned money she spent to keep clothes on It's kind of super lyrical. I kind of like it. You know what it is, man. I was young. Mr. T was the man. I was kind of like happy to be able to do it for him. But rap can do a lot of things. You know, where you can rap about yourself. You can rap commercials. You can rap a lot of different things. It's a, it's a vocal delivery. That's the one thing I try to tell people. Rap is a vocal delivery. Hip-hop is the culture. So you take a, a, like a new pop singer like Keisha, and she's singing, you know, rapping, woke up the morning, looking, feeling like P. Diddy. She's not hip-hop. She's just rapping. Anybody can rap. Like 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 they say, uh, Big Daddy Kane, if you, Dr. Zeus was a rapper, if you rhyme cat with hat, you're a rapper, you know? So, but being part of the culture means you, you know a little bit more about where it came from. Ice-T is the director, executive producer, and host of the new documentary, Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. It's in theaters June 15th, and you can find it online at theartofrap.com. Or follow Ice-T on Twitter at Final Level. Thanks, Ice. All right, hey, man, it's been fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In the 80s, Aaron Freeman took on the identity of Gene Ween and co-founded the experimental rock band Ween. The group spawned an underground following obsessed with its live performances, diverse musical influences, and what they call brownness. There's a lot of change in Freeman's musical world this year. In May, the thumb-nosing alternative rocker released a solo album of cover songs by the 60s songwriter Rod McEwen. Your smile as it widens on your face is like a child running off across the hill. And in just the last couple of weeks, Freeman announced that he's retiring his Gene Ween persona for good. Music has been at the center of a lot of the big shifts in Freeman's life. In fact, he says there's one song that inspired him to become a musician in the first place. No Woman, No Cry. Yeah, the Bob Marley song. Like a lot of us, he grew up hearing it just about everywhere, but later in life he realized the kind of impact it actually had on him. 
I was in a van with a bunch of guys, all in their mid-twenties, and listening to a lot of hip-hop, and No Woman No Cry came on, and suddenly, all these rowdy youngins just stopped, and everybody seemed to know all the words to it. It's just a timeless song. It just stops you in your tracks. Everybody loves that song. I've never heard anybody diss No Woman No Cry. years old so definitely highly romantic you know we used to take trips to the pine barrens in new jersey which is something a lot of philadelphians do and you know when you go out there with a bunch of your friends and a potential girlfriend that you like it's a hot summer day and you're standing by the river i was very new wave back then i had the trench coat and uh you know opening my trench coat and putting said said girl in there <laughs> I, I tie that song into all, all of that stuff. And it was just a, it was a wonderful period of my life. You know, the breakdown in No Woman No Cry when he's saying everything's going to be all right now. It's rhythmically genius. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. It's incredible. It, it really moved me. He's consoling his woman, telling her everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. It's just perfect. And then it comes back into the chorus. It blew my mind. His vocal delivery on that is just unbelievable. I remember thinking, yeah, I could do this. I want to do this. I guess I could just relate to the vulnerability of it, the rhythm of it, the timing of it. And it just made me really excited to make music. And when I'm playing live, I definitely have him in mind a lot. I think this song changed my life by opening me up to love. At that age, I was just starting to grasp the concepts of love and other people and the importance of other people. So when I see that song, I think of just a, a young man becoming himself. It's very, very powerful. Aaron Freeman was a founding member of the alternative rock band Ween and currently records and tours as a solo artist. His new album, Marvelous Clouds, covers songs by the 60s songwriter Rod McEwen. 
After a break, my interview with unlikely starlet Greta Gerwig. If I can make people feel like you can look like a normal person and still be on screen, I think that's a good thing. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. This episode of Bullseye, supported by donations from folks like you and by IFC presenting Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10 with Scott Ackerman and the delightful and hilarious Reggie Watts. Top names in comedy, original characters, all kinds of great stuff. Friday nights at 10, 9 central on IFC. Hey, guys, want to hear longer versions of the conversations on this week's episode? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. And share them with your friends. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Greta Gerwig was planning a career as a writer when her boyfriend asked her if he could use tapes of her real voicemail messages to him in a movie. They had a fight about it, but she agreed. And soon she was a leading lady in the micro-budgeted film movement that became known as Mumblecore. The big success of the tiny film Hannah Takes the Stairs made her reputation, and her easy on-screen style translated comfortably to bigger indies like Greenberg and even studio films like Arthur and No Strings Attached. This year, she's got three big indie films. She starred in Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress in the winter. In a few weeks, she'll be seen in Woody Allen's To Rome with Love, and right now she's at the center of Daryl Ween and Zoe Lister-Jones' Lola Versus. In Lola Versus, she plays a 30-ish woman whose perfect life, a gorgeous artist fiancé, a rent-controlled loft, farmer's market vegetable stir-fries, falls apart. She alienates friends and lovers as she struggles to figure out who she is without the definition of a relationship. Here's Gerwig commiserating with her best friend, played by the film's co-writer Zoe Lister-Jones, after her fiancé breaks off their engagement. Luke is my partner in crime. He's the person I want to wake up with and I want to go to bed with. He's the whole reason I went back to school to get my PhD and now I can't even afford to do that without splitting the bills. That is not true. You can still go to school. You just go work at your mom's restaurant part-time like you did after we graduated. What are we going to do about our friends? How are we supposed to split them up? I mean, you don't really have that many friends. That's true. Except for Henry. Henry is a mutual friend. Honestly, though, this is good. You know, you met Luke your, your junior year abroad. I mean, you were a baby. You need to be on your own again. You've never been with anyone else. That's not good for character. No, look at me. Being single builds character. Greta, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about Sacramento, where you're from. Oh, I love talking about Sacramento. Oh, that's awesome, because that's totally what I'm about to ask you about. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I'm from the Bay Area, and I went to uh, University of California uh, College. And Wait, which, which one? Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. Oh, well, very cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of cool. No, um, super cool. I mean, Santa Cruz is, like, beautiful and laid back and... I don't know. There's lots of communes. <laughs> <laughs> You've described some things that are very accurate about Santa Cruz. None of them are things that are traditionally associated with being cool, but they are well, <laughs> they are nice things about Santa Cruz. <laughs> I'm not really the best like arbiter of coolness. <laughs> but there was totally a guy who there was totally a guy who would always bring almond butter everywhere that I knew. That sounds totally normal to me <laughs> and awesome. I stayed at a commune there where they had decided that they weren't going to use uh, 
any currency. Everything was based on bartering, and they would try to barter with the electric company, which doesn't really work. <laughs> the electric company does not need any of their services. Well, I mean, I think the problem with that is that you get into trouble when you're trying to barter with the electric company, and then the guy you know, comes in the door and gives the status report on his bartering efforts with the phone company. Right, right. It's big. It's it, There are many problems with not using currency because it's pretty much the only thing that everyone on earth has agreed on <laughs> makes life much better. <laughs> <laughs> but it's up to Santa Cruz to really try. Well, I, I, um, I grew up in the Bay Area and so okay. spent some time as a kid uh, in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was doing things like... Um, you know, going on school trips where you get to sit in the lieutenant governor's chair and things like that. Sure. Um, And so all I know about Sacramento is from friends from college uh, who mostly complained about it. Yeah. I mean, well, it's it's not a bustling, exciting city the way San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago, New York are. But it is... It it does have its own thing going on. I love Sacramento. I I I did you know I went to college in New York and I did. I am staying in the big city, but um, it's got a very the population's really. I don't know. They're inve- they're excited about the arts in an interesting way because it's does it they don't have like the the funding or the infrastructure that like San Francisco has a great ballet company and opera and they have the SF MoMA, but Sacramento is invested in the arts in a very like grassroots, very like people do it as a hobby kind of way. There's lots and lots of community theater in Sacramento where people who are professionals in other fields will use their downtime to act in plays and musicals, which was actually such a cool thing for me as a kid because I got to do a lot of it. And I also, I went to a play almost every weekend in Sacramento. It was sometimes like a children's version of Waiting for Godot, but it was always really fun. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, Sacramento's a, a reasonably cosmopolitan place. So I imagine that people were, at the very least, aspiring to a, a, a relatively high level of professionalism compared to most sort of community theater efforts. So you get sort of a, a nice mix of a nice mix of people who know what a good thing is and then also... Um, it, it's actually a community effort rather than just being hired guns. Yeah, I mean, it was a. It, it, I mean, for me, it was a really good mix. I, there's also a, something to, I think, growing up in a place where things aren't the highest level of something isn't immediately attainable is really helpful for creativity. I spent a lot of time in. 24-hour grocery stores doing weird things with my friends and I don't a lot of that stuff is I think it it really helps later because you have this wellspring of just stuff and ideas that you are not depending on other people to tell you it's okay to go make something you just sort of have you do it because it's otherwise it's boring life is boring so um it was a combination of there was enough stimulation and enough boredom to, cr- to to make it an environment where I felt like it was inspiring. 
I think it would probably be a fireable offense for you to say that stuff about doing weird things in 24-hour grocery stores and for me then not to ask for an example. <laughs> oh, oh, weird stuff. Oh, oh, just like, I mean, if it's a 24-hour grocery store, I, I mean, none of my friends and I, we, we didn't drink, we didn't do drugs, we were total theater nerds. So uh, they didn't have a reason to kick us out of the grocery store. We would just like, you know, get in... Uh, those carts that you push around and push each other around. We'd like, we'd reorganize the shelves sometimes, which they'd get annoyed with us about. But um, we do it artistically and nicely. Uh, it was just a place to go hang out and look at products mostly. <laughs> um, but it no nothing truly um, destructive or anything like that. I, I, I'm, I am drawn to the idea of reorganizing the products in the grocery store nicely. Well, yeah, that was, it was part of it. We we could, uh, or, or facing all, I don't know. We'd like face all the labels a different direction <laughs> for some reason. I mean, I don't know. We did a lot of stuff like that. We also did a lot of stuff like just late at night walking around, uh, looking looking for things to do we used to bumper sticker cars we thought we were like revolutionaries so we made a bunch of bumper stickers about doing my part to destroy the environment and we used to put them on suvs (laughs) and that was our big like we really thought we were like che Guevara. i um I once went into a bookstore, one of my favorite bookstores, mm-hmm. Adobe Books in San Francisco, right right near where I grew oh, up. Yeah. And um great. and they had reorganized the entire bookstore. It's a used bookstore um by color. Mhm. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and it was it was a it was I mean it was totally amazing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But just profoundly disconcerting. It's also. baffling. My one of my friends still she organizes all of her books by color. She's uh, she still does that, and it's impossible to find anything. Like, <laughs> in what world would I remember that this book I need has an orange spine? <laughs> I think if I remember that, that would be the sign that I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was what was so cruel about it, because I think the sort of the the idea behind it is who goes into a used bookstore with the idea that they're going to buy this one particular book. But on this one day, my wife had decided she was going to read Anna Karenina. And so we oh, had no. actually gone into a used bookstore with the plan to buy a specific <laughs> book and, and had found... And then we no. had to go up to the counter and say, do you happen to know what color Anna Karenina is? <laughs> oh, no. That's that's the only time they've ever gotten asked that question. <laughs> it's you and someone with synesthesia who's asking that question. <laughs> do you know Do you know what Anna Karenina tastes like? Yeah, exactly. Um, I get the impression that you had a childhood that was... Um, jam-packed with activities yeah i did i my my mom was very good at getting me to whatever i was interested in i it was a lot of stuff i was interested in in a lot of stuff and i had a lot of energy so um it was when i was young it was a lot of dance but not just it wasn't just the standard tap jazz ballet like i took 
hula dancing. I took like Native American tribal dancing. I took hip hop. I took African dancing. I'm like, I really went for it. I, I think it was, I mean, it was wonderful for me. And, and I think it was my mom in part was trying to make up for her childhood, which she felt like they, no one really had encouraged certain parts of her. So I had a fully lessened childhood. You, you were like a, a, you were a very serious ballet dancer at one point, right? I was. I was. I really loved it. I really. I, I wanted to do it for my life. Um, I. I. I never was really. I was never very capable of doing things halfway or doing things as a hobby. I always. So ever since I can remember, I've always wanted to do something professionally or uh, in a real way and something that seems kind of inaccessible, something like I want to, I, I mean, a lot of little girls say I want to be a ballerina, but I, 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 I would have done it had I not been <laughs> stopped from doing it. And I think um, I would have done it in some capacity. I don't know that I would have been, you know, in New York City ballet, but I would have figured it out somehow. And I think I've just always been a person who... I, I I wish I was a little bit more capable of doing something as a hobby or just because I enjoyed it. But I have this horrible, some, comp- some combination of being passionate and competitive, which leads me to uh, throw myself into things like ballet wholeheartedly and really mean it. Ballet is a really intense thing to be into when you're the age that um, the sort of age of reckoning of ballet, I guess, is like when you're 12, 13, 14, yeah. if you're a girl. Yeah, that was mine. That was my age of reckoning. And, I mean, in contrast to, I mean, even other forms of dance to some extent, but, I mean, most other artistic pursuits, you know, ballet is something where you could be, I mean, you could even be talented, like have natural talent mm-hmm. and the drive and will to succeed and just have some thing about your body not be the right thing about like sort of like being a gymnast and growing too mm-hmm. tall yeah i mean i think it's a, i think in, in to americans who who don't like tracking their children it seems cruel but i remember reading about when i was obsessed with ballet it was you know in in russia when you know in the former Soviet Union, when they had nationally supported arts, and in in England, where they have the Royal Ballet School, and any any country that supports dance in a sort of institutionalized way, they look at children when they're about five and six, and look at their bodies, and look at their parents, and test all these things, and their turnout, and their you know their rotation, and their flexibility, and they just weed children out based on genetics and based on natural gifts and that seems so cruel to us like they wouldn't get the chance even if they really loved it but in some ways it prevents a lot of heartbreak because the reality is if your body isn't right there's there's literally there's almost nothing you can do your body's just not right and um of course some of the children who are accepted still don't have the right body but um it, it's a way to to kind of guard against that what was the situation for you? 
Well, I had sort of a combination of I, I was very I got very tall very fast and I always knew I didn't have a I didn't have great turnout um was part of it. And I mean, I was I was also going to I was it also looked like I was not going to have the perfect body, like I wasn't going to have the perfect tiny ballerina body. But um I mean, I think that would that wouldn't have stopped me, but the fact that I was going to wreck my knees was the thing that made my mom finally pull me out and say, um, we're not going to do this because if you're going to be in crutches by the time you're 18, it's not worth it. So, um, I just literally didn't have enough turnout in my hips. What was that? What was that like for you at the time? I was so angry at, at my mom. I, I don't, which was sort of misguided, but I was, I was so angry. I was angry when I was, uh, um, seven because I wasn't allowed to go to ballet classes I would have gone every single day for hours and hours a day. I, I had this kind of insatiable feeling, and I and my whenever my mom would try to kind of make it more. I mean, I think one of the reasons I took too, so many different types of dance was that my mom kept hoping that I wasn't going to be crazy, um, which I was. Um, but it was I was devastated. I was totally devastated, and I still like through high school. Sometimes I would say things like you know if you hadn't taken me out of ballet I really could have been somebody and you you like eliminated that possibility for me and um now I'm I'm very grateful that I was taken out when I was because I think I would have I would have just wrecked my myself um but I was I was so angry <laughs> do you think that that same um that, that same kind of passion was an important part of your success as an actress because you were you um you know you went from 0 to 60 as, or you know from 10 or 15 to 60 from someone who was vaguely considering the possibility of being an actress to being a full-time actress within a a narrow space um you must have you must have really thrown yourself into it wholeheartedly I did I I think that there in some ways is a bit of a mythology that I I have participated in making but that there's an idea of me that like I didn't I never acted and and that that that's not quite true like I acted a lot I acted a lot in high school and I wanted to go to acting school actually coming out of high school but I I did when I was in school at at Barnard, I was very lucky because there were professors from Juilliard who were actually teaching at Barnard, um, professors in acting and in um, playwriting. And I I took acting, but I, I fell in love with writing. And, and I think it was it, that became a, the biggest part of my life. And I and I loved acting, but I in some ways I always kind of dismissed it just on the basis of it seemed impossible to actually accomplish to be a professional actor. That seemed beyond my reach. But then the way it happened, I I just kept getting these amazing opportunities where I was working as a actor and writer and collaborator and I got to really just throw myself into things with the fervor that I always have. So I was very lucky. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Greta Gerwig, star of the new movie Lola Versus. In this clip from the movie, Lola and her mom, played by Deborah Winger, talk about unreasonable expectations in relationships. Hey, remember how much I loved Cinderella as a kid? What a sick kid. It's a classic. It's what messes little girls up because we all get obsessed with shoes and then we think that some guy is going to come put them on our feet. That is a man's job. I actually thought I was living in a fairy tale and that Luke's shoe fit me perfectly. I guess no shoe's a perfect fit, especially when you have slightly irregular feet. Right. Well, you got to find your own style, baby. Are you telling me to go shoe shopping? I want to ask you a sort of an odd question. I think that your, sure. um, I think that one of your great gifts as an actress is that you have a a very very natural feeling on screen, which is a, a tough thing to have. Um, but I I think that that combined with the fact that you made your name playing in this series of films in this genre that were often about young people trying to find themselves mm-hmm. um, in relationships would lead people to think that you are that person that you played in these movies to one extent yeah. or other to in a way that they wouldn't with with, uh, you know, if it was Edward Norton or something sure. like that, someone whose performance is more of a show. Oh yeah, people think I'm these these people all the time. It's funny too. It 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 changes based on it's these subtle shifts of um what who people think I am. I think after I did Hannah, I experienced that people thought I was sort of a selfish narcissist. And then after I did um Greenberg, uh I think people thought I was very sweet, but a kind of a doormat and willing to take a lot of abuse. And it, and it's funny. I mean, I would say more than anything else, it changes the way um, men at parties relate to me. <laughs> they, it's, it's weird. It's like based on what I've done, if they've seen it, they kind of think, oh, well, I'm a secret angry man. So that girl is going to love this because they think that I'm that girl. I'm like, oh, no. I've become more at ease with the fact that you know there is just a level on which like whatever it is I'm doing in my acting people think that they they know me and they're sure that that person I'm playing is me um and I think ultimately that's fine (laughs) um I don't I don't intend to do that I think it's just something that happens one of the things that I I really liked about Lola Versus and, and thought was really interesting was that it has a, a lot of the trappings of a romantic comedy. I mean, it has kind of the aesthetics of right. a, a romantic comedy. It has, you know, Zoe Lister-Jones, who um, a, a, a co-wrote the movie. It plays a kind of classic, quippy best friend and uh, does a heck of a job of it. She's hilarious in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, you know, a lady who has a sort of catastrophic fall apart at the beginning and goes through a series of romantic misadventures. Right. Um, But it's a story about, um, it's sort of rather unexpectedly a story about, um, about getting to know oneself and dealing with yourself rather than uh, the 
external thing of getting into the right relationship and having that make you right. Right. Which I think is really unusual in any movie, but especially a movie, um, you know, especially a movie that centers around a lady. Yeah, I I think it's incredibly rare. I think um, that's one of the reasons I really liked the script. I said when I started reading it, I had I had a feeling that I knew where I was going based on rom com tropes, and then pretty quickly I realized it, it was going to be going in a different direction. And when it ended the way that it did, I was so satisfied by it, and I was so happy that they they went there and they they did that. And um, it's a lot of weight on your shoulders. I mean, it's certainly yeah. It's certainly the film in your career that is most about your character on screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a you're the you're the top line in this, without a I doubt. Know. Was that kind of scary? It was so scary. It's so scary still. Um, going into it, I, I, there was a lot of worries. Is she going to be unlikable? Um, is are people going to just not like this character and not like this girl or think she's too arrogant at the beginning and I, I actually was luckily enough was able to put a lot of that out of my mind I think you know in a certain way I actually I think I always veer towards just trying to make it as truthful and as grounded as I can and I really don't worry about how likable I am or do I look good I that those are two things that I I think I just can't get that interested in. Can I ask you one thing about the looking sure. good part of that? Yeah. Um I was I was talking to uh one of my colleagues here in the office and I said to her, "Oh, what do you think about Greta Gerwig?" And I thought, "Oh, and she said, "Oh, she's great." And I said, "Well, what what do you think is, you know, what do you think is really distinctive about her? What should I talk to her about?" And she said she said, "Oh, how sometimes in her movies she looks kind of ugly. And I said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> because I, I have to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a straight guy and I can, um, you know, I can, I can with authority say that you're a very pretty lady. And, mm. um, and she said, well, I mean, she said, well, she just doesn't always look, sometimes she looks like a human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't help it. I just am a human being. No, I used to really want to be... I think when I started out in making bigger films, I had this, um, you know, when you watch most starlets on screen, they always look perfect. And I thought that that would just happen to me, like that <laughs> I would just become perfect looking and somehow magically you go to Hollywood and then all of a sudden you're perfect and beautiful all the time and then I realized that that's just not true it doesn't happen for all people and that I was not going to be one of the people it happened for I mean but I'm you know I I think uh, I think we're living through a really great time in 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 films for women and I'm really happy to be the I'm glad your co-worker said you know (laughs) that I don't always look perfect because I think I, I feel really honored to be a person who people think of as a real person because I am a real person and um, I think so often movies and magazines show us things that are unrealistic and just make people feel bad about themselves and if I can make people feel like you know they're they're 
you know, everybody, you can look like a normal person and still be on worthy of being on screen. I think that's a good thing. Well, Greta, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Nice to talk to you, too. Greta Gerwig is the star of Lola Versus. It's in theaters this week. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's called The Outshot. Hey, you know what I love? Jokes. We're living in a golden age of comedy based on perfectly constructed, awkward situations, and that's great, too. But a lot of the time, I don't want perfectly awkward situations. I want jokes. And then I want some more jokes. And look, if they're rooted in character and situation, that's great. But what I want is is that click of the puzzle that comes from a joke. If it's stupid or clever or high-minded or low-minded... I just want that thing that fits together perfectly and gives me that jolt of laugh chemicals in my brain, my joke brain. I want to live in a world where laughing is the absolute most important thing, or at least visit that world once in a while, which I'm pretty sure is why for much of my life, my favorite filmmaker was Mel Brooks. And my favorite movie was History of the World Part 1. Look, Mel Brooks has made better movies. Most people prefer Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. And as an adult, I can see that there are a lot of holes in History of the World Part 1. It's just that it is so fun. Some of the jokes are so stupid that you almost can't believe they're really in a movie. Those ones are my favorite ones. Like when the two French aristocrat guys are riding together in the carriage. Oh, but with this long trip and this exhausting conversation, I'm famished. Benez? Yes? Do we have any of those delicious raisins left? You ate yours. These are mine. Au contraire. They are mine. I paid for them. Hand them over. I paid for them. They are mine. Don't be saucy with me, Bernays. <laughs> I mean, that is dumb. But I love it so much. Or when Dom DeLuise is being Julius Caesar and he's receiving all the plunder of the Orient and he gets a bathtub and a bunch of jewelry. Change bathtub. Change your bath. I'm going to have a treasure bath! Treasure bath! Treasure bath! Oh, man. When Caesar starts rubbing gold necklaces in his underarms, I just lose it every single time. And I've seen this movie a lot of times. And that's barely even a joke. It's more like just pure, concentrated goofiness. But it's delivered with absolute conviction by absolute masters. When Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition, as portrayed by celebrity Jewish person Mel Brooks, leads the Inquisitors in song with the imprisoned Jews singing back up, oh, it's just over for me. We should have more of that in the world. And that's my outshot. 
the Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. We're going to teach them wrong from right. We're going to help them. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Justin Morissette. Special thanks this week to Jason Isaac at WNYC, who engineered half of our Greta Gerwig interview. You can follow us on Twitter at Bullseye, and you can like us on Facebook. We send out lots of cool stuff all the time in those things. And if you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.